Amen. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. Before we begin tonight, I want to give you something to think about in relationship to the passage we're going to be looking at tonight. One of the core elements of being a Christian is surrendering to the supremacy of God in our lives, of giving Him control, if you will, of every area of our life. And when we think about our life, say in the area of things like our family, our finances, our vocation, our dreams, is God in control or are we more in control? And are we learning to surrender to the supremacy of God and to His will for our life? And the reason this is so important is because we're going to see tonight a man, John the Baptist, who knew who he was. And he knew who he was because he had embraced the role and responsibility that God had created him for. Going back to Sunday's message. He had surrendered to the supremacy of God and He was willing to do God's will and let God be in control rather than him be in control. But a lot of times that struggle to surrender in our lives to God's supremacy comes back to our view of God. We just sang about God being near. And for many Christians, one of the reasons why it's hard to surrender to God is because our concept of God, our theology, if you will, our view of God, in some way maybe has gotten warped or twisted over the years or isn't isn't biblical, it isn't accurate. And so it's really hard for us to surrender to a God that maybe we don't trust, or we don't see him in a certain way. For instance, we we could say, do, do I usually view God as being near, or do I view him more as being distant? Do I view God as being uninvolved in my life, or do I view God as being engaged in my life? Do I view God as disappointed with me most of the time? Or do I view God as delighting in me? And how do I view God as far as the hardships and struggles of life? Do I view my hardships and struggles as purposeless and meaningless? Or do I view the hardships and sufferings and struggles of life as God having a real purpose for allowing them? See, depending on where I fall in all these things is going to determine where I surrender to Him or not. 
based upon my view of him. Obviously, one of the reasons why John the Baptist surrendered to the supremacy and the will of God for his life and knew who he was is because he had a very accurate and proper view of who God was. We're not going to take very much tonight of this chunk of Scripture, but I'd like to just read this for you, beginning in verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony. When the Jewish leaders sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed. He did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So they asked him, Then, Who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? Tell us so that we can give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John said, I am the voice of one shouting in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So they asked John, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not recognize, who is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. These things happened in Bethany, across the Jordan River, where John was baptizing. You'll notice three times in these early verses of this passage tonight, These leaders, Jewish leaders, who were sent from Jerusalem, asked John three times, Who are you? In verse 20, or excuse me, verse 19, in verse 21, and in verse 22. Who are you? That's a good question. It's not a bad question. John knew who he wasn't, and he knew who he was. Here's an interesting question for us. Who are you? If someone was to ask you that question, who are you? What would your answer be? And later on, they ask him, why are you doing the things you're doing? That's another good question. If someone was to ask us, who are you and why do you do what you do? What would our answer be? I think the reason why John was able to answer to a degree, maybe not to their satisfaction, but to a degree the questions he was given was because John knew who he was because John had surrendered to the supremacy of Jesus Christ and John had embraced the role and responsibility that God had created him for. And I guess if I could encourage you with anything tonight, It would be that as you and I seek in our life to surrender to the supremacy of God and let Him be in control and let His will be done rather than ours, that one of the things we will find that comes out of that is that actually it will solidify our identity. 
we will know more clearly who we are and why we are here and why we do the things that we do and why God made us the way He made us, you see. John is a great illustration of that principle in the Word of God. He he was able to Relax with who God made him, even though he didn't fit the mold of most people. Remember, he wasn't the guy that went to the nearest, like, Jerusalem buffet. He was a guy out there in the wilderness popping locusts and eating honey. And he didn't bother going down to the, you know, store and... and, No, he just wrapped himself in animal clothes and fur, you know. And yet... He was okay with that. He he never allowed how other people looked at him or viewed him or whatever because he was able to so just relax and rest in who God made him because he had, again, surrendered to the supremacy of God and he was so comfortable in the role and responsibility that God gave him. And he knew who he was. Now, I will say this. Something that as I kept reading this, and this is one of the importances of just reading passages over and over again, that you get stuff that you wouldn't get just the first time you pass it. You'll notice when the Jewish leaders come out and begin to ask him, who are you? That the first answer to that is five words. The second answer is three words. And the third answer is one. (laughs) It's like John keeps getting a little bit more impatient with this line of questioning. Notice, who are you? He says, I am not the Christ. Five words. Who are you? I, um, I am not. Speaking about, are you Elijah? And then, are you the prophet? And he just says, no. Who are you? Who are you? Notice up in verse 19, though, as we go back and take our way down through this, that The reason these Jewish leaders had been sent from Jerusalem all the way out in the wilderness to question John was because God was using John to stir things up. If things would have been status quo and if people's lives would not have been changing and if, and if, if people's hearts would not have been melting and if, if, if John's ministry would not be making an impact, then these Jewish leaders would have never been sent from Jerusalem. They would have stayed in their comfy, cozy environs of Jerusalem. They were sent. And they were sent not to truly uh, seek an inquiry and be open to whatever John said. They were already had their minds made up. In, in a sense, they were the ruling spiritual leaders of Israel, and this guy out here in the wilderness is sort of upsetting the way we like things to be done. And he never attended our schools, he never went to our seminaries, he never allowed us to train or brainwash him, he doesn't do things the way we do it, and yet he's really causing a stir. So we got to go out and check out this guy. I hope this will be an encouragement for you. 
that as you seek God's will for your life and you do God's will and you embrace the role and responsibility God has for you, know this, that as God begins to use you, our spiritual enemies will not rest. All of a sudden, you will be faced with opposition from all directions and people will begin to question you and, and, and seek to back you up and seek to intimidate you and, and all of that. That's what will happen. Because Satan and, and the world and, and, and those who are opposed to the cause of Christ are not just going to sit back as God begins to work touching people's lives through you and just let you be. And that was certainly true with John the Baptist. These Jewish leaders sent priests, the descendants of Aaron and Levites, their helpers in the temple, descendants obviously of Levi, from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And again, he confessed. He did not deny, but confessed. Look, I'm not the Christ. I am not the anointed Messiah. Why did he even respond that way? Well, at that time, there was buzz, if you will, using a modern term, around the coming of the Messiah. There were some in Israel that at least had paid attention to the prophecies of Daniel who had predicted about this time that Messiah would come. And so there were some Messiah expectations in Israel at this time. And then when you get this John the Baptist out there in the wilderness doing his thing, again, people began to, you know, it, what's happening here? And so people began to think, is, is he the Messiah? Is he the one we are looking for? And of course, John says, no. Now, again, humanly speaking, if John would not have been, and we see he was a man of humility, if John would have not been a man of humility, how easy would it have been to begin to try to be somebody that he was not? And that's why it's so important, too, that we know who we are, because when we know who we are, we also know who we're not. And we don't try to be or do something or present ourselves in a way that we're, we're not. He was not called by God to be the Christ. He was not called by God to be Elijah. He was not called by God to be the prophet, so he denies all those things. It's like, look, I, that's not me. That's not who I am. But he goes on later to say who he was, and we'll get to that in just a minute. So after he says, I'm not the Christ, and they say, well, are you Elijah? And the reason that is, is because, again, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament predicted that before the power and coming of the Lord, that Elijah would reappear. So they're thinking, well, okay, if, if the Lord is coming, maybe he's Elijah. And he certainly reminded many of Elijah in some ways. And Jesus even compares John the Baptist later on to Elijah in some ways, based upon his ruggedness, his, his willingness to stand alone and be so courageous, especially against the spiritual leaders of the nation and his diet, you know, those type of things. So in that way, but John says, I'm, I'm not Elijah. I'm not. And then he says, are you the prophet? This refers to 
a verse out of Deuteronomy chapter 18, I think it's verse 15, where Moses prophesies that a prophet will arise in Israel and that the people of Israel will need to listen to him. Later on in the book of Acts, we find out that the prophet is Jesus. And Jesus certainly fulfilled the roles of prophet, priest, and king when he came. And so John the Baptist says, I'm not that prophet that Moses talks about. So then again, they said to him in verse 22, then who are you? You're not the Christ. You're not Elijah. You're not the prophet. Tell us so that we can give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Again, a good question. Who are we? What would we say about ourselves? Why do we do the things that we do? It's good every once in a while for us to ask ourselves those questions and to examine you know, ourselves, just to see, again, where our thinking is. And so here's John's response. John doesn't even say, in a sense, that he's anything more than a voice. In that response, you see, again, humility. He, he, he doesn't come out and, you know, I'm this, I'm, I'm just a voice. And I'm just a voice that is shouting out in the wilderness. Now I want to go back to this word voice. It literally means a sound to disclose. Or to shed light on someone or something. That's what the word voice in the Greek means. And I want you to keep your finger there because it's only over a couple chapters. I want you to see in John chapter 5, verse 35, what Jesus says about John the Baptist. And it goes along with this whole concept of John being a voice and one who shed light on who the Messiah really was. Jesus says about John the Baptist in John 5, 35, he was a lamp that was burning and shining. And you wanted to rejoice greatly for a short time in his light. I love what Jesus said about John. He was a lamp that was burning and shining. That's what we are to be. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine. Shed light on who God is. Be that voice, if you will. Burn bright with your life. And that was exactly true of the voice. The voice, by the way, that John back in John 1 says is shouting. The word means speaking loud and clear. Again, there was no, you know, like sometimes even today, people who claim to be spokespeople for God You sort of listen to them for a while and then you go, what are they really saying? What what are they trying to get across? I mean, I'm even thinking to myself, you know, I'm like, okay, I I think I know the Bible pretty well and stuff. And I'm like, what are they really trying to say? 
And John, it was like, wasn't anything like, you know, no one could understand, but he cut through it all and it was just very loud and clear. Like we're going to see next week. Look, the Lamb of God, it takes away the sin of the world. Boom. You know, very clear. God not only wants our light to shine, but he wants our witness to just be very clear. And obviously then that implies that we've got to be living a life that doesn't cause confusion. Well, do they love God or not? Or are they a Christian? Maybe they're not. I don't, you know, don't know. I mean, it's got to be a, a clear cut. They love God and, and, and they put God first in their life and their faith is important to them and, you know, all that. Then it's out of what they see in our lives and how they observe our lives and the choices and decisions we make that then our verbal witness has a lot more force to it when they see that there's a consistency between our lips and our life. And then he says, I'm this voice of one shouting in the wilderness. And the wilderness not only speaks about a desert place, we can certainly, living in Phoenix, understand the desert place. And I think that's appropriate in some ways because that certainly describes the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel at this time. They were a spiritual desert, wasteland. They were in darkness that we've talked about already. The nation, for the most part, was in spiritual darkness. If not, then they would have never needed the light and, and they would have never needed And even after the light came, they didn't, as John says, even recognize him. That's how much darkness was in the land. But more importantly, and I think more accurately, the word wilderness here speaks more of a, of a solitary place of a lonely place, of a desolate place. And the point that I want to make there is, again, that there will be times in our life that we have to embrace maybe standing alone. John didn't have this great you know, throng of necessarily supporters there. He had some. But in his witness and the way he witnessed, it was pretty much he's out there in the wilderness and he's all alone pointing people to Jesus. And sometimes I'm sure you feel that way. Some of you, where you work and where you go to school and in your community and in your neighborhood and maybe even in your family, you might be the only Christian in your family. And sometimes you probably feel like, I'm the voice of one shouting in the wilderness. You know, know this, God understands that. And God appreciates the fact and wants to encourage you to stand up, not be obnoxious, not try to ram, you know, something down someone's throat that doesn't want it, but that God wants you to just be very clear about who you are and not to compromise who you are and who God's created you to be. And so John personifies that. He's the voice of one out there shouting in the wilderness. And then he says, make straight the way for the Lord. This phrase reminds us of how important preparation is to God. 
He's taking a phrase from the culture of his day. Where before generals or armies would be sent out, they would send uh, an army, literally, not an army, but a group of soldiers sort of in front of them, sort of like the Army Corps of Engineers, who would go before them and, and begin to make the way that the army would go a lot more passable. So they would fill in all the potholes. If, if, if a place was, you know, really rocky, they'd get all the, the big rocks out of the way. They would make that road as smooth as they possibly could. So when the general would bring his army through, he would have a much easier time navigating that road. John is saying, that's the role that God had for me. He wanted me to come before Jesus' ministry and begin to fill in some potholes and, and begin to get rid of some rocks on that road to make this preparation so that the people's hearts and minds would be prepared for Jesus when He came and would be more acceptable to His ministry. That's how big preparation is to God. That's why it's important for us before we ever even sit down and do our devotions and have our time in the Word of God, that we take time to prepare. We'll get way more out of it if we are prepared. Just like on Sundays and Tuesdays. We'll get way more out of coming together and worship and Bible study and all of that if we've prepared ourselves. In fact, it's certainly not the only reason. Because God is worthy of our praise and worship just because of who He is. But one of the great other reasons of using praise and worship of God before the Word of God is taught, like we do here, is so that our time of, of focus on God and all of that is a way for God and His Spirit to take the words and songs and praise and all of that that we're giving to God to prepare our hearts and minds for something else that He might have for us as well. It's a way to transition from the busyness of our day to getting quiet and still before God and getting our focus on Him so that what He's going to say even has a greater force and impact in our life. This was the ministry and role of John the Baptist. Preparation, preparation. And again, we live in a society today and in a culture and a world where it's all about the next thing and rushing to this and rushing to that. And we don't spend enough time in preparation to then really be able to squeeze out of our experiences, if you will, as a Christian, all that we could be getting because we're not taking time to prepare. And we might even try to convince ourselves, I don't have time to prepare. But then we wonder on the backside why maybe that experience wasn't as meaningful as it could have been or should have been. Always be reminded that every time you and I think about John the Baptist and his ministry, the word preparation should always come to mind. That's exactly why John was sent by God. To prepare the way 
for the Lord. Remember, his primary message to the people, and it's not contained here in the Gospel of John, but in the other Gospels, is repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Bring forth fruit that proves your repentance. It was all about repentance. It was all about, are you willing to change? Because the one who can change your life is coming. Are you willing to change? Because if you're not willing to change, if you're not open to change, then his ministry will have no impact on you. Which is why I go back to these Jewish leaders who were sent. They weren't coming to John truly inquiring because they were going to be open to whatever John had to say. Their minds were already made up. This was not an inquiry to try to get more information and then go, Oh, okay, well now because of that I'll do that. No. It was all about, it's going to be this way and if you don't fit into our mold, John, then we got a problem with you. Which is why then in verse 40, 24, they say, now they had been sent from the Pharisees, the leading religious leaders of Israel. So they asked John, why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? By what authority? Who do you think you are? And here's what the real rub was. In those days, in Israel, Baptism was primarily for proselytes, Gentile proselytes to Judaism. That was primarily what baptism was used for. In other words, if a Gentile wanted to embrace Judaism and become a Jew, a worshiper of Jehovah, then they would be baptized, you see. So here's the thing. Here's where the Jewish leaders have a rub. It's not just Gentiles coming out to John the Baptist to get baptized. John the Baptist is calling Jews to be baptized as well. And that was appalling to the Jewish leaders because they were like, what do Jews have to repent of? We're Jews. We're okay with God. We are the ancestors of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't have anything to apologize for. We don't have anything to repent of. We don't need to change. The Gentiles need to change, but we're okay. And the fact that John the Baptist was calling on Jews to repent and be baptized just set the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem on edge. How dare he call us Jews to repentance? So you can see the spiritual pride. And you can see the contrast between the humility of John, the true servant of God, and the Jewish religious leaders who are so prideful that they took exception to John baptizing not only Gentiles, but Jews without their permission or authority. And you'll notice in verse 26 that John really doesn't answer them. He doesn't say why he's baptizing. He just says, I baptize with water. And the reason he's saying that is because he's saying, look, again, my baptism is all about preparation. My baptism is a baptism of repentance. My baptism is just baptizing people who are coming to be baptized, saying, I'm willing to change. John's not going to be the agent of change. 
Only Jesus Christ is going to change that heart. But what God wants John the Baptist to do is to begin to get people prepared and to look for people at that time, Jew and Gentile, whoever, who is willing to change, who's not satisfied with their life, who's not satisfied with where they are, who's willing to be open to God, who says there must be something more to life than what I'm experiencing at this time. That's who God always seeks. No matter what religious background, no matter what ethnic background, nationality, whatever, God is just always seeking those who are willing to humble themselves before Him and say, God, I don't have this figured out, but you do. I'm coming to you. I'm willing for you to do a work in my life. I'm willing to change. As long as we are not willing to change and we are hard-hearted and we are stubborn and we're just set in our ways, then we cannot see God work. Not because God couldn't, but because God will not force himself on us. And so John says, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one whom you do not recognize. And John is talking there about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and saying, there is one who is standing firm right in your midst, and you don't even recognize him. And he's your Messiah. How sad. Jewish religious leaders knew the Old Testament like the back of their hand, knew all the Messianic prophecies, and yet could not connect their knowledge of the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament with Jesus Christ. It goes to show us that knowledge alone, apart from spiritual enlightenment that only the Holy Spirit can give in a heart that is humble and open to being guided and directed, is just knowledge. And that's it. They did not recognize the Messiah. And part of it was because their expectations of God and who the Messiah was to be was totally erroneous and unbiblical. Because they wanted to read into the Old Testament prophecy of the the Messiah, one who would come and immediately overthrow the Roman yoke and the Roman government and set them as Israelites free once and for all. That's all they cared about. A political revolutionary. Not one who was going to come first before he set up his kingdom and die for the sins of the world and humble himself. And because of those wrong expectations and looking in the wrong direction, there was their Messiah standing right in their midst and they didn't even recognize him. You think today about people who God is there in their life. He might even be in their life through you. God may be in their life through you. You're there, you're in their life, God's there. And yet they don't even recognize Him. They don't even see it. Again, because of their blindness and living in darkness and unwillingness to change or repent. And then John says this, He is coming after me. But I am not worthy to even untie the strap of his sandal. In those days, that was sort of the lowest servant's job. You know, the the, the lowest servant would be the one that would untie the sandals. Because obviously, people walked on those dusty roads and stuff, and their feet got filthy and dirty 
And who, won, who would want a fool with the feet? And so that, that was always reserved for the lowest of servants. And John even says, the one who's coming after me is so great, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. He knew who he was because he knew who Jesus was and he had embraced the role and responsibility that God had given to him. And then John writes, these things happened in Bethany. The word or name Bethany for the town Bethany, I wouldn't want to live there. Here's what the name means. House of depression or misery. Where do you live? I live in the house of depression or misery. I live in Bethany. This isn't the same Bethany where Mary and Martha and Lazarus was from. This was a different Bethany. But I want to point this out. These things happened in the house of depression or misery across the Jordan River where John was baptizing. And again, John's baptism was all about bringing change. All about dealing with people who were willing to change. And it's a beautiful picture that there were many there who lived in a house of depression and misery and they were tired of the life. They wanted something different and they knew that there must be something different. And so they were coming out into the wilderness, even from Bethany, to John saying, John, baptize me. I need a change in my life. I'm open to whatever God has. I'm willing to surrender to the supremacy of God. I no longer want to be in control of my life. I want God to be in control. As we think about this message tonight, two primary things. Who are we? Who are we? Well, how would we answer that? Do we know who we are? And secondly, as we seek or struggle to surrender to the supremacy of God, it primarily involves two areas of our life. One, who's going to be in control? Is God in control of my family, my finances, my vocation, my dreams, my plans, or am I in control? In every area of our life, we could ask that question, is God in control of that area or am I primarily in control? Who's in control? And it's when we are willing to relinquish control of our lives in each of these areas and let the Lord be the Lord. Let Him decide. That's when we begin to see the embracing of the role and responsibility that God has created us for and we begin to really understand our identity and who we are. And the second area is what is our concept of God. Again, if we were to take just these questions, do I view God more as distant in my life or near? Do I view God as uninvolved in my life or engaged in my life? Do I view God as being primarily disappointed with me or delighting in me? And when it comes to the hardships and suffering and struggles of life, 
Do I view them as primarily purposeless and meaningless? Or do I view God as having a purpose and plan for those hardships and struggles? And when you and I have a proper concept of who God is and who He wants to be to us and we relinquish control, we take a very important step in our lives as a Christian, which is surrendering to the supremacy of God. If someone was to ask me, Pastor, what's one of the most important things a Christian needs to learn to do in their Christian life? My answer would be to learn to surrender to the supremacy of God. Let Him be in control. Let Him lead and rule our lives. Let us say every day, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. Let us say, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Following the words of Paul, I want to present my body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And following the words of Jesus. If anyone wants to come after me and be my disciple, he must learn to deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this passage where John taught us about who he was and who he wasn't. And Lord, I pray tonight that each of us are learning and growing into knowing who we really are. Who you created us to be as we learn to embrace our role and responsibility in this world. And God, we know that that primarily involves two areas of our life. It involves learning to let go and give you control. And it also involves our concept and view of you as God. God, I pray tonight as each one of these folks, precious folks, that you dearly love and that I dearly love leaves this place tonight. Would they know, God, in their hearts and truly believe that you're not distant, you're near. That you're not uninvolved and uncaring in their lives, you're very much engaged. That, Lord, you're not disappointed in them, you delight in them. And that if they're even now going through pain and struggles and suffering, Lord, it's never meaningless or purposeless. For you always have, have a purpose in it all. God, take us home safely tonight. Wake us up tomorrow burning with that purpose you've created us for. Willing to shine like John's shine. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, thanks for being here. We'll see you on Sunday.